Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Brutzall. How you doing, Kirk? I am doing quite swell. Uh, quite swell? Wow. Quite swell. <laughs> Not just regular swell, quite swell. Yeah, that's that's kind of a Scotty term. I think so. I also think of like Leave it to Beaver. Oh, Gee, yeah. Mrs. Cleaver, that's a swell dress you have on. <laughs> Thanks, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we had a hey, we had a Supreme Court primary earlier this week, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, that was a big, very interesting. Big I you know I know you and I talked about this, and I don't know if you agreed completely with me, but I I thought Jennifer Doro was like a shoe in for, um, you know, for the Republic. Well, the, you know, it's nonpartisan, of course, but you know, from that camp. Um, but I guess I was perceiving it incorrectly. I don't know. <laughs> I had the same perception. I thought she was going to run away with this, um, given her um, prominence that she gained mm-hmm. at uh, Daryl Brooks, Brooks' trial. But um, uh, we were clearly wrong. It was a lot of infighting within the conservative camps. Um Right. And uh, like serious attacks. Like, I don't really watch political ads that much, but I was, you know, they, they were so overwhelmingly huge uh, and, and common that they were all attacking her, both from yeah. Dan Kelly and from other groups. So, well, technically not from either tech- one because, well, not from either, not from any particular candidate because they can't do that, but they were from PACs you know, super PACs that had lots of money. And, um, you know, that's, we talk about it a lot, but that, you know, the issue adds these things that basically, um, are stating a political message, but they're not saying that they're, uh, and they can't cooperate with any particular candidate, but very clearly the intent there was to make judge Doro look soft on crime, which, (laughs) is not at all the case i mean you and i well, both know that um, i know it's 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 like a it's like a broken record when it comes to judicial campaigns about you know um i'm tough on crime and this other candidate is going to lead you all to slaughter and let every criminal out and give them your home address and you know it's just i mean yeah um but i'll tell you there's two things money wise that just really struck me about this whole primary campaign and the first is that there was a smashed record of spending nine million dollars right um Mm. just for the primary and the other thing that struck me was dan kelly saying i'm gonna be i'd be the best candidate against janet because i can attract special interest money a judicial candidate said that um, and, mm-hmm. and he was, he, he didn't just say it. He like yelled it you know, <laughs> verbally, but <laughs> it, it, it was, it was remarkable because if you remember, like even just, you know, 20 years ago, maybe, uh, that, you know, these kind of campaigns were very boring. They were very, you know, um, uh, uninteresting to the public generally, the legal community would watch, but you know, we there was there was there wasn't the vitriol, there wasn't the the huge money. Um, you know, it's it's well, there's a good reason for that, and it's because the true qualifications of a good Supreme Court justice are not 
easily identified without a complex legal, you know, analysis. And that's boring to people. Yeah. I mean, you know, things like consistency of uh, rulings, not what they ruled on, but how consistently it was upheld or reversed in the lower courts or um, how many opinions were actually authored. If someone's coming from the court of appeals to the Supreme court or strictly the number of cases that were handled, giving that person experience that is important. Now it's all about, Hey, way back when this person had this case and you can glean from that, that they're dangerous <laughs> for our society. Well, you know, that's exactly how this is getting framed right <laughs> but, now. Um, and, at least in Wisconsin, the the horribleness of attack elections really came into f- the fore with um, Lewis Butler in 2000, I want to say eight right. um, ish, right around there when um, Michael Gableman ran against him. And it was just, boy, talk about a slash and burn and, um, and successful, too. Yeah. You know? Right. And that was really the first time I think that we saw not only these attack ads, but also, you know, dishonesty being incorporated into them. I mean, that you remember there was oh, yeah. litigation over this whole thing and Gableman's response to the whole thing was, well, you know, uh, I don't really have to be truthful or accurate in what's said in these things because I have political free yeah. speech. Yeah, that was um, sort of the... <laughs> the groundwork for what would eventually become the Trump campaign. You know, I mean, uh, right. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And a lot of others too. I mean, uh, you know, and it goes, it's not exclusive to one political party or the other. I mean, for what it's worth, I think it's worth pointing out that, uh, Janet, uh, say, how do I say it? (laughs) I, I almost had it. Proto say I mean, there was there were a lot of attack ads, you know, supporting her as well, and there was a lot of this, you know, uh, tough on crime notion from her as well. I mean, it, it it's just infected our entire process. But we always, always, always have this debate: would it be better to appoint judges versus uh, them being elected? And in places where judges are appointed and not elected, they complain that there should be elections. Um, and in places where we elect judges that, you know, there's complaints that they should be appointed. But um, it's it's insulting to me that the purpose of these attack ads is really that, you know, it's a statement with regard to that candidate's estimation of how dumb they think the public is or how unwilling the voting public is to actually investigate uh, before they vote. And, you know, I know that there's a lot going on in society. People are very busy. You know, we're actually more inundated with data now than we ever have been in our entire history of the world. And sometimes people are looking for shortcuts in order to help them exercise their decision making. But it's really just preying on that fact that um, all this inaccuracy and really diverting from what truly would be. Uh, a good democratic notion, which is, you know, electing somebody who's going to be in the highest court in our state. I mean, it's 
in principle, it's not a bad idea at all. It's just that the way that our political system works and our, our so-called nonpartisan races, which are, you know, not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, know, we're just, the whole we're just saying idea that, right? of appointing is very attractive um, given what we see in these campaigns. And, and what I fear mostly is, and I think it's a legitimate fear is that, People just start to look at a court as just another committee of the legislator, legislature, you know, um, instead of what it's supposed to be is this separate body, separation mm-hmm. of powers, and um, uh, to to look at things with you know clear, sober eyes, and not the um, you know the the, the wild eyed um, <laughs> political. Uh, lens that legislature and executive branches do, you know, um, by mission. Um, well, isn't it isn't it also obvious that let's say a Supreme Court justice is looking at an issue where if the the right decision, if the constitutionally proper decision would result in somebody who's convicted of doing something very bad would have to have their conviction reversed and freed. Where does this tough on crime mentality enter in that, you know, sober, logical process? And it shouldn't at all. I mean, that's exactly what uh, what we want and what we need when we have that supposed impartiality. But everybody who runs for that job is, you know, forecasting that they won't be yeah, you fair know, and impartial. I just had a conversation like sober judge that this we week want, which with – uh, a friend of mine who's um, a realtor and he is a very conservative guy and um, and he was telling me that uh, that about how much he admires what we do what I do in terms of um, being a criminal defense lawyer uh, and and he 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 took what I think is the correct conservative view, which is, look, you know, this, if this is going to be a system that works at all, it has to be a balanced system. It has to be a system where, where we do push back against um, yeah. the government. And he's all about that. And I was like, I was like, I, I don't understand why, um, yeah conservative analysts or lawyers or judges or whoever um, take the attitude of being in favor of the government as often as possible and rarely for the defense when four of our 10 (laughs) amendments of the Bill of Rights directly with directly <laughs> Deal exclusively with defense. Yeah. Well, John, we, we got to take a break. They're knocking on the door for our advertisements. So we're going to step back for a second and we'll be right back after these messages. We're back with more legal defense. Wow. All right. So, so much going on in the uh, legal world um, and in just the everyday world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting aside war and mass shootings and such, um, <laughs> which seem to be endemic. But uh, you yeah, know, right. one of the things that um, in that whole crazy, um, you know, 
uh, witches brew that is our world, uh, the, the court system and the courts themselves are, in my opinion at least, critically important to bring this, to bring like a calming, steady, um, you know, presence uh, to what otherwise is just like, you know, wild eyed um, hair pulling out, you know, pearl clutching. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, ears, yeah. You know, and you no. Know, and when you think about it, that's the most, the most important part about the judicial branch of government is that, I mean, if you break it down, if legislators get wild and crazy ideas that, you know, in the interest of trying to get and obtain votes from their constituents, and if that results in making legislation that is clearly unconstitutional, or for that matter, the executive branch abusing its power in the same sort of efforts to, you know, appease the public in general. I mean, this is how we prevent tyranny. I mean, isn't that what our whole, the whole foundation of our entire uh, political democratic system is to avoid tyranny. So why are we even having a discussion about uh, candidates that can go up all the way up to the top? And by the way, one reason why that branch needs to remain as strong as it is, is it's the final word, you know, well, practically the final word on a constitutional issue. The decisions that are made by the Supreme Court can't be overturned by anyone except a future term of the same body of government, you know? And that's why it has so much power, and that's why, um, theoretically, that it has to be strong, just when you think about the strength that the other two branches can exercise and, and what that means in light of preventing tyranny from occurring. Well, it seems um, like um, that it would be a good time to revisit life tenure and yeah. have for lack of a better term, more of a rotating group of judges where each president, like every term of a president's administration should get at least one pick. And then, you know, and I've heard these proposals before and they're very attractive um, uh, because they bring, you know, not only fresh blood into the court, but um, some sort of, you know, um, I don't know, like inclusion of what, like reflecting what the country looks like instead of being out of whack. You know, there's many times in its history where it's just mm -hmm. out of whack. You know, um, we can think back in the 1850s with Dred Scott or in the 1890s with uh, Plessy. Which still hasn't been reversed, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> well, technically it was reversed by the 15th Amendment, but... Right, right, but there hasn't been like a uh, you know Supreme Court didn't say we re we you know withdraw that opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it, you know, like in Korematsu in the in the nineteen forties, and uh, you know, I mean, so there's 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 this um, tendency, I think, to uh, look to the court for everything, and really, that's a very unusual model. If you look around the world, uh, for the Supreme Court to be that. Mm -hmm that powerful um, and, and, and be, be that unbending, you know, um, on the other hand, you mm -hmm. know, there's, 
there's a lot to be said, like we were saying before, for some continuity, for some, you know, like calm, reflective judgment. Um, there's some question about whether that's actually the case at this point. Well, look, you make a good point here because we do have term limits when it relates to like the chief executive, right? We have other limitations on how long someone can serve an office in our state system. We rely upon regular elections to occur in that highest court. In the federal system, as we all know, judges are appointed with the consent and approval of the Senate uh, or advice and consent of the Senate, rather. And um, I, I think the traditional logic behind that is to, for a lifetime appointment in the federal, on the federal bench, is the idea that that person then would be free from political attack or, you know, the whim of the other branches. That's par- I think that's part of why we consider that third branch of government um, to be independent is working that into it. Now, maybe that's a, an arcane view and maybe that isn't something that, cause we've seen its own share of problems and to pretend that a lifetime appointment of a federal judge is without politics is utterly silly because we see right. how it goes. I mean, <laughs> and it's been going that way for a long time, you know, anytime there's anybody that, uh, you know, it's a way of, uh, the legislative branch basically um, restricting the power of the president. And it's supposed to be that way, but it's, it falls along purely well, political you know, lines and it has. I mean, there's a lot of proposals out there to reform the court. Um, and one of them is, you know, the, the court says that, you know, these are the cases we're going to take, but Congress can step in and, and restrict what cases they can review. And a lot of people don't know that, um, but they can. And um, yeah, and I didn't know the. Wow. (laughs) Well, I'm going to have to start calling you uh, (laughs) Don Birdsall. The other other thing is like, all right, well, we can keep it at nine, but at a certain point, at a certain age, maybe, um, you become automatically senior status, and then you can still participate as a judge but you don't vote and then they bring in somebody new to take that so the nine voting spots and then those senior status people can go to circuits around the country you know like they used to do they used to ride circuits you know yeah you know what's interesting about that idea is that if you had a, a an age cutoff right that's not something you can manipulate at the at the tail end right the way it is right now is that it's up to any individual justice well in in most cases i should say it's up to any individual justice to either decide him or herself that they can no longer perform their duties due to advanced age or they can die or it, they can be removed under very exceptional circumstances. So an, an actual age cutoff would be something that would make it less subject to manipulation. I mean, that's been a controversial issue as well throughout our history is, you know, efforts to expand or pack the court, you know, in previous administrations successfully in some of them. And, and that's uh I, I mean, I, I find it kind of odd that that's something that was even possible when it happened because, but on the other hand, 
you know, as society changes and moves, why should we have the same number of justices on a Supreme Court when we had far fewer states as as you would with the advanced population yeah. and now, growth um, of the country? Well, that we were talking sense. about packing. I mean, the famous Roosevelt court packing plan, um, because he keeps striking down his new legislation mm-hmm. uh, when you know the country was in a legit economic emergency for years. And depression, and um, uh, and, right. and then Roosevelt's like, "Oh, okay. Well, you're going to keep striking them down. I guess maybe we'll just have to add eight more justices and see what happens." <laughs> you know, my perception of that whole gambit, uh, and I might be wrong, so I'm going to ask my uh, historian friend here, John Birdsall. Um, my perception of the the way that that was even possible had to do with what I think was uh, a massive oh. amount of public support of the president at the time, and I know there were there were dissenters from the whole the poll plan, but I mean back then, at least how I perceive it is that you know he enjoyed it a was approval rating that yeah. was really uh, you know off the charts. Uh, Astronomical. Hey, let's take a break uh, and we'll be right back as soon as our advertisers talk to our listeners. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Legal Defense. Uh, John, I want to shift gears just a little bit. I mean, that was a fascinating discussion. And as with most things, we could go on and on and on and on. And sometimes we do. But uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to reflect on a couple things. I'm constantly reminded when I have these encounters with various prosecutors. That and and to be honest, most of them are in that younger generation of newer prosecutors that, um, you know, are carrying the torch for, uh, on behalf of the people and have these very high ideals and pie in the sky notions about what their role is in reality. But um, I know you're very familiar with what I'm about to say because you've encountered it uh, just as I have over the years. But this mentality where if a defendant, and I'm going to expand this in just a little bit, but in, in the court process itself, once a case gets to that point after being charged and as we're going through the various um, procedural aspects of the case, you've heard it before when a prosecutor says, hey, if your client requests that the case be set for trial or if you file any motions on behalf of your client <laughs> or if you signal in any way that you're not going to plead guilty to whatever we want your client to plead guilty to. We're going to punish your client. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not mincing words here. I mean, they don't use the word punish, but, but, but here's the dilemma that I have. And, and we see this in cases that go up to the courts in years past where there've been challenges to these various, they're often referred to as tools in the toolbox of the prosecution. And, the the you know in the federal system it's probably more pronounced than anywhere where the federal government the prosecution has owns the keys to several different uh provisions that allow for a lower sentence that even judges aren't allowed to I- invoke so that's kind of an extreme example of how, just how very powerful the federal government can be in its prosecution efforts but we see it in more well, behind the scenes type ways in state court systems. So, you know, think about it. It's our rights, including the right to a trial, the right to counsel, 
the right to remain silent, all, all of our, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure have any meaning whatsoever. That means they have to be able to be exercised. And it's always puzzled me why the courts have bent over backwards to promote this notion that, yeah, you have that right, but you have an equally important right to waive said right, which to me is way off base because uh, you know, I've always thought about this. I've, I know I've had numerous conversations with legal scholars, smart people like yourself, and I've suggested for years that if we could have a system whereby it wasn't possible to waive those rights, that our system would work much better. You know, what if, in fact, that right to remain silent wasn't something that the police could manipulate somebody into waving and then when they say i should i didn't want to waive my right to remain silent and the cop said well i gave him every chance not to even though there's a lot of manipulation and psychology that is permitted to be worked into that process and the way that the courts consistently come down on that issue is hey who are we to say that somebody didn't want to harm himself or herself by incriminating themselves that's if we were to say that they can't do that, we'd be taking away their free will. Well, thank you very much courts, but you know, uh, the defendant would be much better off if you weren't trying to, you know, <laughs> skirt around that right that's yeah. in the constitution and extract evidence that you are you know, using that particular right, the right against self-incrimination is, as you well know from doing this for so long is probably the most important, right? Because, um, from my experience, I looking at criminal cases, both my cases and others, um, over the years, the vast majority of criminal filings are pretty weak if they didn't have statements from the defendant. You know, um, mm-hmm. not all. You know, there's there's some that you know there's DNA or there's, maybe there's video or you know eyewitnesses or something like that, but. A, a, a very, very sizable chunk of cases would, would either fall apart, the majority, the bad, or maybe not even be filed absent some statement by the accused. And um, and it really mm-hmm. fuddles me why people continue to talk to the police. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. well, I I know why, and it's because there's been a. Um, there has been a long-term effort over the course of many, many decades to convince the public at large that um, the police are entirely benevolent in all situations. And that if you're a, if you identify yourself as a law abiding citizen, you should have nothing to hide and you should have nothing to fear. Combine that with extended efforts that permeate our society to, um, divide all of us into two categories, good people and bad people, right? So when you have never been in trouble for anything before and the police come and they want to interview you and they take you down to the station and you think, well, I'm a good person. Uh, I may have made a mistake, but, you know, and then they they capitalize on that and lead one to believe that if they do waive that right, it's not going to be that bad. And it's an exercise of instantaneous, uh, you know, um, concurrently occurring uh, power over an individual. I mean, both physically and mentally, 
right? Someone gets taken into custody, handcuffed, brought in. So that's the physical part of it. They're actually in custody of a law enforcement person. Then all of the things that are permitted by cases that have gone all the way up to the Supreme Court that allow a law enforcement agent to basically mislead a person as long as it doesn't rise to the level of some imaginary line where it turns into well, co- true coercion. A lot of people would say it's not coercion if you're, um, um, if you're not like hitting them with a the rubber hose, you know? Right. And, and hey, there were cases where that happened. And they're like, yeah, that is coercion. But, you know, anything else, not really. And, again, it's this problem that we have. So, you know, we were talking about Supreme Court justices before. Does it make any sense for someone who has never presided over an actual, you know, court level trial or someone who's never participated as either a prosecutor or defense lawyer in their entire career? Does it make sense for that person to chime in? on these types of issues as to what's good for the public and what's good for the, the system and how things actually play out in court, because the appellate courts read pieces of paper. Sometimes they hear from the lawyers that when they ask them questions and make them squirm and uncomfortable, but you know, 99.9% of the work that appellate courts do is all based on things that are, that people write and read and then interpret and it's a, it's a fair point when they say we're not going to replace our um, judgment with that of the actual trial judge or the jury who was there in the courtroom when the verdict happened. That makes sense because they're in the ivory tower of um, legal, you know, interpretation. But at the same time, that sort of hands off approach that, you know, they, they create so many more exceptions to the rule. It's so rare that we see um, rulings that say, oh, the Constitution says this. And given the fact that it says that thing, we're not going to go beyond what it says. So a lot of these judges or justices that say they're true textualists or um, originists, originalists, um, don't uphold that standard when it comes to, you know, what actually does the Fifth Amendment say? What does the Sixth Amendment say? Because then there's all these other situations where, or the Fourth Amendment especially, all these situations where they say, well, it says that. Maybe we can pick it up on the other end of the break, but (laughs) a discussion about what, in quote, interpretation really means uh, as opposed to, you know, like, um, I mean, Mm -hmm. You know, conservatives will say, you know, well, I just apply the facts to the law. That's whatever. That's the refrain that everybody says. But what does it really mean in real life? What does that really mean? You know, I'm yeah. not, I'm not a activist. I'm not an activist judge. Well, okay, they're all activist judges. <laughs> every judge, every judge who's a living, breathing human being has a yeah. viewpoint of the world. And um, so, well. How could one say that the expansion of the Commerce Clause to be to to confer federal jurisdiction on so many different issues yeah. is not, um, you know, expansionist? I mean, but that's our law, and that's the way it is. We do have to take a break. We'll be right back. One final session of legal defense. You know, we survived the snowpocalypse this week. 
Um, or maybe you didn't. I don't know. Um, are your house like completely buried? Like, you know, like you live in the Arctic or what's, what's the deal? Yeah. My house is completely buried. Like I live in the Arctic. Absolutely. Um, it is, well, you know, I know it's the weekend now. Well, everybody knows that it's not the weekend when we're talking. It's pretty, we, we do this when these two experienced lawyers can find a little break in their schedule at some point prior to Saturday morning. So it's not actually Saturday morning while you and I are talking, but at the time that we're recording this show, uh, there is about a foot of snow outside uh, my door and possibly by Saturday, that won't be the case, but anyway. Uh, yeah. And I know how is your uh, place up North surviving? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's like movie snow. It's beautiful. Um, as long as you're inside. <laughs> and I know but it's like you're a big Hallmark that. channel fan. So is it like yes. that? You know, it's kind of like that. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe I'll have a, romantic adventure with um, <laughs> yeah um and so uh but not to sound too old manish but back in my day i remember we had three feet of snow regularly even know? in the summer even in the summer and then we had to, walk, had to walk to school uphill both uphill, ways both ways under live ammo fire <laughs> <laughs> so um but no it's um, I, I've come to peace with winter. I used to spend six months just like expletives coming out of my mouth um, as I trudged through the snow, especially if I had been at a trial and I had like drag oh, that's the worst. through yeah. this through literally like like feet of snow to get to the courthouse. But um, but I've come to peace with it. So it's, during the thick of the storm, I, I had several cases in different counties where it was difficult to get to the courthouse, but I did it and my clients made it. And in several instances, the prosecutor who, whose office is in the same building <laughs> uh, couldn't make it because it was too snowy <laughs> or whatever. And I'm not singling anybody out. It's just, I saw it happening in a lot of places. Um, did Milwaukee courts shut down? I mean, Milwaukee didn't get it as bad really. But icy. Yeah. It, um, Milwaukee shut down. What day was that? was actually last week. Mm-hmm. Um, but that this week, week, I don't know if they did because I just skipped town and <laughs> remotely. So, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, but, you know, that's the beauty of uh, the post pandemic. The thing, the one thing we've all learned is you can work remotely. Yes, and I'm glad that judges, many judges anyway, have figured that out, and it, it does make a big difference for a lot of some things. are refusing. They're refusing. Yeah, I know, and and you know, there's reasons for that. I I often think that if I were a judge, would I be comfortable doing like phone hearings? I hate phone hearings. Zoom's a little better, but you know. I guess, you know, I do feel more comfortable when I'm in person, but if it's something that all you're going to do is say, yeah, judge, uh, we're still working on something. I need another date. Why drive four hours for that? You know, and that's, there are still those judges in in those counties that say, I don't care. You got to be here. Well, there's another aspect of it too, to be fair. And that is that, you know, we really didn't know uh, any 
significantly effective way for remote appearances until COVID made us figure it out. And the entire structure of the criminal system relies upon someone being present in court, not only to, because they have a right to be present, but the right to confront witnesses. And also from the other side of it, when a judge orders somebody to be back on a particular date, you know, it's on the record that they were there and they heard it and they were ordered. And sometimes they sign something that says, yes, I'll be there. And then that's one of the primary mechanisms for enforcing bail jumping, you know, charges is when somebody, if somebody doesn't show up when they were told to. So it muddies the waters a little bit on a lot of these things. But um, the reality is that for heaven's sake, we have like really good technology that now. And um, like you said, COVID kind of gave that to us. Um, And why don't we use it as much as we possibly can in all these situations? Right. For for things like scheduling, which is really (laughs) a lot of what goes on in every courtroom every day is rescheduling and scheduling things. And, um, and just, Updates, you know, it's like, well, you know, I don't have a little discovery, and I, I want to, I want to do this motion. I need more time, right? You know, and so that sort of stuff that should automatically be Zoom. That should just, you know, um, especially when you get to the rural counties. I think the rural counties actually embraced Zoom because it allowed them to get a wider uh, right. Uh, pool of well, attorneys. that's another development that's worth cases. talking about because, as we, were we all know, before, there's a know. tremendous problem throughout the states finding uh, defense lawyers. Not not only for those that take public defender appointments or people actually working for the public defender's office or people that are appointed by the court, but also just private attorneys. That's we're we're in a crisis right now because there are so many people that need lawyers. And can't get them. And some of that is based on pure availability, you know? So we're in an era now where that could significantly help address that problem. Um, I know that there's, yeah, there's. It it has, it has. But, but even with that, there's still, you know, a right. big decline of people willing to do criminal cases. You know, and it used to be, if you recall, yeah, I mean, it was very common, especially when I was a younger lawyer, to get the um, for young lawyers to take public defender appointments. And, and so they, a lot of people took them just as a sort of a stopgap while they were transitioning maybe to a civil practice or something like that, but they wanted that experience. I took them because I loved them and I never looked back. Um, But, but that's not the case anymore. Even, even if they raise the rate um, to a, you know, a very significant level. Overall um, lack of enthusiasm. I I really don't know what it's all about, but it's worth exploring and figuring out. Yeah. So, um, well, you know, that's, and, and that's particularly true for poor people, for indigent people that the public defender is supposed to, uh, represent and they just don't have the bodies. Mm-hmm. They don't have enough lawyers, you know, whether staff lawyers or private bar lawyers, you know, and it's not just, it's all, it's like literally like every corner of the state, yeah. rural and, and areas, urban areas. There's, there's a um, extreme shortage of prosecutors too. I mean, 
they, they get heard uh, a little more <laughs> effectively when they say we're we're not able to prosecute enough crime and you know that they get people's attention. <laughs> oh no, it's like, it's like we're not oh, able to no, we're not able we to charge as many people with crimes as we want to. Well, but <laughs> I, I'm not sure if this is a remedy, but in Dodge County, which is like Juneau, Wisconsin, they uh, the the sole the sole remaining prosecutor resigned because he couldn't do his job and so he's just like yeah well i'm not doing this anymore so they uh, zero. Yeah, i don't know if that's been they are resolved yet but then they went from county, one or, zero well that some of the counties aren't even adjacent but yeah it's a there's <laughs> a big gaping hole in the process there um which by the way that that da ended up everybody speculated that he was trying to get a job with more money and he did slightly more money in a different da's office believe it or not so <laughs> he didn't. Oh, well, he's yeah, to have support, which I don't blame the person for, you know, it's the same thing with public defenders. You know, they, they have like obscene caseloads and, um, really a lot of them want to do this work. Uh, but, but they get overloaded right. and they have, they don't have sufficient support, you know, and part of that, Part of that is money, and part of that is just structure um, of the agency. You well, know, it's, I see it time and time again when not we're in court, scenario, and the, whatever DA's office comes in and says we're short staffed, we can't do this, we can't do that. They tend to get a lot of uh, leeway when the defense comes in and says, "I haven't had time. I need to do this. I need to do that." Uh, we tend to get yelled at if, <laughs> if that's something that we try and say, well, John. We, we, <laughs> They're like, well, that's <laughs> you problem. Well, we got to wrap it up. It's uh, time for us to depart and make way for the next show. But listeners, you can tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.